One of the greatest dangers to any believer is isolation. Whether you are extroverted or introverted, isolation from the people of God spells disaster in the long term. If you enlist in the army, they'll tell you real quick that if you're isolated from your team, you're as good as dead. You will not survive any battlefield if you are isolated. Behind enemy lines, the things that keeps you safe is your team, your comrades, the men that are standing shoulder to shoulder next to you. For a soldier, isolation from his army is a death sentence. And today, we have this interesting case study into a man that we've heard a lot about. Abraham's nephew, Lot. And he is going to give us a clear view and glimpse into the dangers of isolation, especially isolation from the people of God. He's going to give us this in-depth picture of the eroding influence of the world and why it is absolutely vital to be in a community of faith. And so my, ter- my sermon is uh, titled today, A Threefold Chord Community. Because a threefold cord is not easily broken. And our strength lies not alone, but together. And so my first point is this. We should take care, lest we isolate ourselves. We're going to pick up from Genesis 19, verses 23 to 30. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all of the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. It's been a wild ride since we last saw Lot. A couple of angels show up in the city of Sodom Some men want to sleep with them. Chaos ensues. Uh, Lot barely makes it out alive with his two daughters. We see uh, God raining down sulfur and fire and utterly devastating the cities of the valley. A quite epic, huge, cataclysmic event. And this would have been utterly devastating for the family. Super devastating for Lot and his family. And we know this because... Lot's wife, she looks back longingly at this city that was being destroyed and she delays and she's too close to the city and she's turned into a pillar of salt. She undergoes some sort of calcification process from being so close to this disaster and she lingered too long and now she's died and she is a pillar, a reminder of looking back at your old life and almost everything has been stripped from Lot. Everything's been taken from him. He's like Job in a sense. His wealth, his house, his status, his reputation in the city, his hopes for the future. And now his own wife had perished in the flames and fire of burning behind him. How did Lot get to this place? How did he end up here? 
It all started in Genesis 13, 12, when Lot isolated himself from the people of God and he left Abraham's camp and he pitched his tent in Sodom. He and Abram, Abraham, they split. They split over this petty disagreement over their herdsmen. And we've seen some petty disagreements, and this is one of them. Churches often split over petty disagreements. And Lot lifts up his, his eyes, it tells us in Genesis 13, and he sees the Jordan Valley. And he looks down at the beauty of this place, well-watered, flourishing, it says, like the garden of the Lord. This place is amazing. And there Lot saw the well, comfort. He saw happiness, wealth, and fortune. He wanted the easy life. Proverbs 18.1 tells us, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And this is exactly what Lot has done. He is isolating himself. He's broken out against all sound judgment and he sought his own desire. And this is the man Lot. This is who he is. If you want a picture of the man Lot, he's someone who seeks his own desire. He isolates himself from God's people. He seeks after his own desires and he makes blunder after blunder after blunder. And now he's destroyed his family. His family is utterly annihilated. And when Lot was fleeing the city, the angels told Lot to go somewhere in particular. Do you guys remember where that was? The hills. He doesn't want to go to the hills. He couldn't stand to leave the city behind. So he says to the angels, please, just let me go to Zohar. It's only a little town. It's only really small. Please, please just let me go to Zohar. And the angels say, reluctantly, like, okay, you can go there. We're not going to destroy this city. You can go there and you can hang out in the city. But had Lot simply listened to the angels, he may have wandered up into the hills. And where would he have seen, who would have he seen that morning? He may have ran straight into Abraham. But he doesn't. Abraham has gotten up early in the morning. He sees this column of smoke, but one thing he does not see, Lot. And the sad news is he will never see Lot again. They will never be reunited. And Abraham has given everything for Lot. He has loved Lot like his own son. He has cared for Lot. He has uh, saved Lot many times. When Lot was uh, taken by King Chedorlaomer and, and brought over and held um, as a slave, uh, Abraham risks his own life and goes out and rescues Lot and brings Lot back. Abraham loves Lot. Lot would have been welcomed back to the people of God with open arms, with celebration. So why does Lot not go back? He breaks out against all sound judgment. He flees to Zohar, but he doesn't stay very long in Zohar, does he? Because it tells us that he was too scared to live there. I don't know why he was. We don't know why he was too scared. Perhaps he thought the disaster would continue coming and overwhelm him. Perhaps the people in the city of Zohar were hostile towards him. They were too small. They didn't want to welcome any outsiders. But Lot, instead of returning to Abraham is now further isolated even from the rest of humanity and he's now living in a cave. This is what we see as the humiliation of Lot. He's at his darkest place. He's at his weakest place. Lot, he was once a great man. He was a man with a big family. 
He was a man full of, with, with a household full of servants and cattle and livestock and wealth. And he had so much promise. And he could have been a patriarch of a people. We could have remembered him as a, a person that extended the rule and reign of God in his area. But instead, his legacy is now nothing. And all he has is his two daughters and whatever scraps of gold and silver he was able to rummage through when he was fleeing the city. And I don't need to tell you this, but living in a cave is not a glamorous way of living. There's no glamping when you're living in a cave. And whenever characters in the Bible live in caves, it's humiliating. It's their humiliation. It's when they're at their darkest point. It's when they're at their weakest point. When David is being hunted as this criminal fugitive, what happens to him? He's at his darkest point. He's been thrown out of society. No one's gone after him except a loyal band of followers. And where does he live? The caves. He's in a dark place. What about Elijah? He's being hunted by King Ahab. He's just overthrown the prophets of Baal. And he's moping and he's in self-pity and he's thinking, Lord, I've done all these great things for you and there's no one around. No one follows after you. And where is he? A cave. He's hiding in a cave. He's humiliated. And what's unique about Lot is that David was being hunted. Elijah was being hunted. Everyone else that resides in the cave have good reasons to be there, but no one is hunting Lot. I want to make that perfectly clear. No one is hunting Lot. So then why is Lot in a cave? Why is he running? Who is he hiding from? We don't know who he's hiding from, but I'm going to take an educated guess. Abraham. By extension, God. Lot is in that cave hiding from the Lord. And he's the most isolated he's ever been. Decades of comfort and city living has made him selfish and prideful. And now he can't even bear the thought of returning to Abraham like this. He doesn't want to go back. I mean, even if he went back to Abraham with his, with his uncle Abraham, Lot would have had position and authority again. He would have had wealth and success. His daughters would have had someone godly to marry. They would have had a future. But he doesn't go. And his last chance to rescue his foolish decision lied only a few days travel to the west and he stays in the cave and he doesn't leave the cave and he wallows in self-pity he wallows in despair and lot was running from the place he needed to be all along every creature has its place a rabbit has its burrow a fox has its den the birds have their nests and for the christian you have the church if you find yourself in a cave like Lot, you're in a dark place. It's a period of humiliation. If you are isolated from the world, it is a place of darkness. If you are isolated from solid believers and surrounded by the world, being discipled by the world, letting your children be discipled by the world, you are breaking out against all sound judgments, Proverbs 18.1. The question is, are you connected with a faith community? And I don't just mean church attendance, but that's maybe a good starting place. But bums in seat do not make Christians. A man or woman can be just as isolated from the people of God and they're sitting in the church. Australia is a transitory country. What I mean by that is we move around a lot. 
We, we get jobs, we get new places, we're constantly moving around. But our first priority should be, where are the people of God? If you're moving, where are the people of God? It's not the same question as to whether there are churches there. There may be churches there, but you need to ask the question, where are the people of God? Is there a healthy, gospel-centered community that you can be committed to and loyal to? This is what we need to find. Where can I put down my roots? Your number one priority is to be a part of a real Bible-centered, flourishing faith community. And if you don't have it where you live, you need to move and find it. Don't stay in the cave. You need to move. And I hear people moving for jobs or for study or for experiences, but I rarely hear someone say, I moved to be part of a strong faith community. I moved to go help this church plan. I moved to go and push the kingdom of God further into areas that have been unreached and push the light further into darkness. You don't hear that. People don't move for those reasons. And Lot's problem began when he isolated himself from the people of God. And for him, that had horrendous consequences. Leads me to my second point. We should take care lest our isolation lead to sin. I'm going to pick up from verse 31, heavy passage. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The last couple of weeks, we've been taking a very candid look at some of the worst things that humanity has to offer the worst things that humanity is capable of. But still, we look at this and we just think, how on earth did we get here? How did we get to this point? In Genesis 13, Lot is thriving with the people of God. He is doing well. He is getting strong. He's growing in his wealth. He's growing in his capacity. He's growing in all of these metrics. And this is the last thing we hear about the man. What has gone wrong? This is the final act. Imagine the play of your life. If you were able to show a play, you were, people went in, they were watching, there were actors up on the stage, someone was acting you, and this is the final act of your life. What a legacy. Boy, this is messed up. Lot is now isolated from most of society. He's too afraid to live in Zoar. He's too overwhelmed by shame to return to Abraham. And now he spends, I don't know how long, alone in a cave with his two daughters, isolated. Got to remember that his daughters were born in and grew up in Sodom. This is their city. This is where they were discipled. This is where they were evangelized. This is what they grew up in. And they seem to have adopted a similar licentiousness that the place had. And they see intercourse as merely a means to an end. It doesn't really matter. It's just a thing. It doesn't hold any significance. And Lot's da daughters, they're disciples of Sodom. 
They are just like the city they just fled from. And the cultural pressure, something that we don't understand now, but there was a huge cultural pressure for young women to have children and to bear and have children, to conceive. And and you can't possibly understand the pressure because in our society, the pressure is the opposite. The pressure is not to have children. It's a horrific tale. But before we try to cast judgment on them, we must remember that there are movements in Western countries to legalize this kind of stuff. If it's between two consenting adults, then why is it wrong? Our moral equations when we're talking about this sort of stuff are flawed. And in this passage, Lot's not consenting at least. He's got some faith in God and so the daughters know they've got to get him drunk in order to persuade him. They've got to kind of bypass his critical thinking. And like when we saw Noah before, if you remember from Genesis 9, Noah got drunk and he fell into similar sorts of sin. And alcohol and sensuality seem to go together like a hand in a glove. I remember in my pre-Christian days going to parties and doing all that kind of stuff. And I know for certain that, yes, alcohol and sensuality do seem to go together like a hand in a glove. So many people getting cheated on. So many controversies. So many scandals in just my small little friend group. It's still true today. And this passage says that Lot doesn't know when they laid down or when they arose. But he knew what happened. The Bible is not presenting Lot as innocent just because he got drunk. Quite the contrary. Lot is completely responsible for this, whether he is sober or not. And alcohol is never an excuse for our actions. Alcohol may have bypassed his critical thinking and dulled his frontal lobe, but he made the decision to drink in the first place and he made the decision to drink again knowing what happened the night before. Lot didn't know his daughters as well as he thought and he didn't realize the effect of raising his daughters in Sodom and what that would have had and his isolation was his downfall. We see this effect in church decline. When churches decline in different areas, it usually follows a similar pattern. The first generation loves the gospel. They're about the gospel. The second generation, they assume the gospel. It's life as normal for them, and the third generation loses the gospel. They walk away from the gospel. Now, our stories will be very different from Lot's. Just know I am not making the foolish argument that if you isolate yourself from the people of God, you're going to commit incest. That is not what I'm saying at all. You've got me completely wrong. The text is not saying that either. It's showing us two very real figures, Abraham and Lot, both flawed, both very flawed, but one is moving towards God and one is moving away from God. That is the key. When we isolate ourselves from God and his people, we're inviting in weakness and temptation into our lives. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, And though a man might prevail against the one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And that is good wisdom from Solomon right there. Our strength lies together and our weakness comes from isolation when we are alone we're easy prey have you guys ever seen like the wildlife documentaries and you see like a lion going after things and like tearing animals apart you're like whoa man this is hectic like cheetahs running around chasing things down well when they're going after a herd of like antelope or buffalo or something like that they're not going after the big strong alpha male of the pack They're going after the little ones, the ones that are easy to catch, the ones that they're easy to isolate. If 
the funny thing is, is when you're watching these wildlife documentaries, I'm just like, man, if all those buffalo just kind of like got together and protected their little ones in the circle, no one's getting eaten. But in fear, they all scatter and then they're able to pick off kind of the weakest ones. And it's a great example because the Bible describes the devil in similar ways. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, the devil, he's a specialist. And what does he like doing? Isolating. Isolating Christians from the church and drawing them into sin. Because sin has a good impact on Christians. It keeps them away from the church. So once he's isolated them and led them into sin, he can push into that sin and then continue to keep them away. And that's what he's done here with Lot. In my time as a pastor, which, you know, hasn't been that long to some pastors that you guys may know, but in my small time, when I've noticed people drifting away from church uh, and their conversations that I have with them begin to be a quite surface level, I don't like talking about spiritual things, uh, I usually, nine times out of ten, there's a secret sin in their life. There's something going on behind closed doors and they feel shame about it. And when the devil can drag you into that place of secret sin, he can drag you more and more away from the people of God. And then that's when he amps up the pressure. That's when he questions the church. That's when he says, oh, you know, why do you want to go back to church? How can you worship God when you're in this state? You're so messed up. Or maybe he'll make you think, you know, how dare those self-righteous people judge me? How dare they say these things against me? How dare they think these things against me when no one's saying anything and no one's chasing you? The devil is great at making you feel hunted when no one is chasing you. Or maybe, which is the more Australian way, church makes me feel uncomfortable, so I just want to stay home. That's the classic one that you see in Australia. Christian, when you feel those things, you can rest assured that that feeling is not from the Holy Spirit. When you hear those things, you can rest assured that Satan's goal is to turn you into Lot. He wants to isolate you and drag you away and destroy your legacy and destroy your future. His goal is to get you to love the city of Sodom. This symbol of enticing sin within the world. He wants to shipwreck your faith and he has no mercy just recognize that. He doesn't think, oh boy, they're having a tough day. Like this is the moment, I, I feel sorry for him, I'm not going to go in. That's the moment when he's going to be kicking you the hardest. That's the moment when he's going to be getting into you the most. He does not give you a break. And when you are close to breaking, rest assured, Satan is very close. If you are in that dark place and you've fallen into sin and you failed to love God throughout the week and you find yourself moving further and further away, Look around you. Look at these people sitting here. Don't isolate yourself from the church. Don't do it. Isolation is the first goal of any lion, and trust me, it's the first goal of the devil. It's to get you away from a faith community. Do not fall into his trap. Third point. We should take care lest our isolation destroy our legacy. Last two, last two verses, last three verses, verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. 
He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, Lot's not entirely responsible for everything, but his decision-making has led him into a terrible place. He's become the father of two major nations. Lot will indeed have a legacy. After all, after all of this, Lot will actually be the father of two nations, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Moab meaning from father, Ben-Ami means son of my people. And you can see the utter just shamelessness of these daughters. They're just willing to name their sons, get it all out in the open. Uh, they name their sons after this plan that they've conceived. Uh, but once God has given people over to their sins, we see from Romans 1 that they no longer feel shame. And when they no longer feel shame, they give approval to people who act the same. And you can see in the mythology of these nations, kind of recasting this as these noble daughters. It's fascinating when you go in and you look at the nations of Moab and Ammon. And they became bitter rivals to the people of God. They became chief enemies of Israel. Not only did Lot destroy his own life, but he destroyed his own legacy because he is now the father of the enemies of God's people. This man of God is now the father of the enemies of God's people. They abandon the worship of the God of Abraham and they worship this God named Chemosh. They've abandoned God. They've become God's, the enemies of God's people. Our future ultimately lies with the people of God and in community with the people of God. And if you want to maintain and keep your legacy as a household of faith, you need to make sure that you're a part of a genuine church. You absolutely need to. And hey, if you don't think it's here, you need to move to one where you do find one. Somewhere you need your children to find quality partners. You need somewhere where you can imagine your grandchildren growing up in, your great-grandchildren. You need to think multi-generational because Lot's decision to live in Sodom was a dead end. That was a legacy killer. Eventually, his legacy would become like Sodom. This is a guy named King Hezekiah, much later in the Bible. He has a very fascinating story. He was a man of God like Lot, but he was very foolish in his decision-making. And there's a judgment pronounced on him. Really pay attention to the words in 2 Kings 20, verses 16 and 19. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers has stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Who would be happy after hearing that? Hezekiah is happy after hearing that. Why? Because he knew he was going to die. He was going to live a long, happy life and die before any of these horrible things will happen. And he's happy. I could say a lot about how we feel that way about our government and politicians, betting away their grandchildren's money. But Hezekiah, he wasn't concerned at all about what will happen to his children, only that his life was good. Many of us may not say what Hezekiah have said, but in our actions are pretty much the same. 
Our legacy means nothing to us. What our children do means nothing to us. As long as they're happy, then we're fine. As long as there's peace and security in my day. But we find that churches are weak. We find in Australia, our churches are fragile and easily disturbed and fall apart. When COVID comes through different areas and people are forced to lock down and churches go in online, this shaking of churches to see whether or not they will stand tests and trials and tribulations that come upon them. And we find these churches crumbling. And they were not crumbling because COVID crumbled them. They were crumbling because they're weak. They were fragile. They weren't going to last. Their communities would not last. They loved isolation, these people that have left the churches, and they loved not gathering with the people of God. And the effects of this is, well, we're not going to see it straight away. The effects that all of this is going to have on the churches in Australia, we're not going to see it straight away. Like Lot and Hezekiah, they were satisfied with peace and security in their day, and they paid no attention to the future for their children and the future of the church, and their churches were weak. And Lot is an example of a dead tree, a shriveled vine, a wasting away into nothing. I've done a lot of praying about this, but for me, this seems to be the story of the church in the Hunter Valley. Not everywhere in the Hunter Valley, but definitely sections, and likely the story of many churches around Australia. We have isolated ourselves from the people of God and slowly ebbed and fell away. And what we see when you go to cities is a graveyard. Church buildings sold, turned into houses and galleries and coffee shops. You can walk through Singleton, Brankston, Cessnock, Curry Curry, and you will see that graveyard as you walk those streets. Empty, old, dilapidated churches. And the only people that are in them, well, they're not going to last a decade. It's a ticking time bomb for churches in the Hunter Valley. What about us? What will our legacy be? Will we be like Abraham or Lot? Will our church be weak? Will our community be weak? Will we fail to be a haven and refuge for the people of God? Because there are many reasons we can talk about why the church has declined and turned into what we see around us. We can, there's so many things we can talk about. I'm not going to talk about it now. But it's not what we're going to do here. It cannot be what we do here. Because if that's what happens here, then we will just be another tombstone in a graveyard of churches. We are all here praying and hoping for a new community of God to form in this area that we can do something different than our forefathers who have taken away our inheritance, who have taken away the gospel. We want to create a community that has a future for our children. We want to raise up godly young men and women so that they have someone to marry and build new families with. And what will be the legacy of this church? We're only small, like look around you, we're a tiny church. We're barely a mustard seed. But God specializes in turning mustard seeds into flourishing trees where birds can come in and nest. God is, can create a legacy for a man who lived in Ur and God says, come out to the land I will show you. And he turned him into a flourishing, fruitful tree. God can do that with anyone and any church. And we need to believe that because that is the truth. 
And that is borne out across all of church history. That is borne out across all of human uh, humanity. When you see God working, God creates things that aren't fragile but stand the test of time because God's church is eternal. We are not eternal. Our institutions fail. Our man-made things crumble into ruins, but God's church, nothing can prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the one thing we need to do in this area is we need to rouse Christians from their isolation. They've been isolated for so long. Their families are disintegrating. Their children are no longer walking with the Lord. And we need to call them out of Sodom into the people of God. And we need to call them out of this area into our church. And we've got to make sure that our church is a thriving community. Because if we are not that, if we become isolated and vulnerable, then the legacy of this church will go south just as quickly. Talking about it is not going to save us from it. And if we're going to lose our children to the world over my clenched fist, we will not lose one Jesus will not lose one. We will do everything we can to build this community. We will not go the way of lots. Christian here in this church, make the people of your God your priority. I don't care where you're going. I don't care if you're leaving here. I don't care if you're going somewhere else, you've got plans, whatever that. Make the church your priority. Make the people of God your priority. Where are his people? That's the first question. Seek first the kingdom of God, not a job or a house or a university or experience. The isolation will shipwreck your faith. Learn from Lot. Do not go his way. And I know our church isn't here yet. We don't have our own building. We don't have anything. We barely have any resources. Look around. This isn't the most pretty thing that you've seen. We've got a lot to do. We've got a lot to build. And I know we aren't a thriving community yet because we're so small. And you look at our community and you think, yeah, it's great to think of this idea of who my kids can marry, but there's no one in this church for my kids to marry. And I don't know whether there will be anyone that will come that my kids can marry. Yeah, you're taking a risk being here. The safer option is to go pack up and join a thriving, huge community of faith that have many people in it. But if you're here, it means you're willing to take the risk to see something grow here. If you're going to stick it out here, it means that you're willing to take the risk to love church, to love your God. And so you need to make a decision. Where will you and your household be? Where will you stay? And what will you build? And what will be your legacy? I want to encourage you with this. If you stay here, come every week if you can. Disciple your children and evangelize to them daily. Give generously to the church and do the work of an evangelist. And if we do all four of those things, our church will succeed. The writer of Hebrews puts it best. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Take those words to heart. Write them on your doorposts and on your walls, but more importantly, write them on your deeds and in your minds. Let's pray.
Father, this is your church and this is your work and this is what you have made by your hands. And we know, Lord, that no house can stand, no household will stand the test of time unless it is established by you, Lord. And Lord, we know your kingdom is eternal and your kingdom will never perish and nothing will ever prevail against it. But Lord, we are weak, we are flesh and blood and we struggle and we isolate ourselves. But Lord, would your word speak clearly to us? Lord, so often we read your word and we skip over things that are so essential and yet we see the book of Genesis for all the horrifying details. We see so much wisdom. Lord, will we not be hearers but doers? Would we make real action and would we not walk out of here the same, viewing church the same, viewing your bride the same? Lord, would we love you and our neighbour. In Jesus' name. Amen.